You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. This episode is the first interview for the podcast, but certainly not the last. Last week, I released the War Spite special, and when I did, I did all the normal social media stuff. When I posted on Twitter... Ian Ballantyne was tagged by one of my listeners. And for every series of episodes for the podcast or special episode, there is a foundational source. Sometimes it's the book I read first, sometimes it's the book I found to be the most useful, but there's always something that functions as kind of a baseline for all of my other research. For the Warspite special, that book was Mr. Ballantyne's Warspite. After a bit of back and forth on Twitter, we ended up arranging an interview that was done just this past Wednesday, and I wanted to get it out as soon as possible. I hope you enjoy uh, our conversation. We discussed a few pieces of the podcast and some of the research that Mr. Ballantyne did for his book. If you would like to check out any of Mr. Ballantyne's books, you can find a link in the show notes or on the website at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash interviews. You can look forward to more interviews starting on Sunday, December 13th, at which point the Spanish Civil War interview series will begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special History of the Second World War interview. Today, I'm joined by Ian Ballantyne, a fantastic author, and most importantly for our purposes, the author of War Spite an absolutely critical source in the creation of the War Spite special that was released last week. Mr. Ballantyne, how's it going today? It's going well. I've been uh, working away in my bunker, and uh, it's been typical Plymouth weather, which means uh, rain, but hopefully we'll get some sunshine. As you know, people in Britain like to talk a lot about the weather, and that's because there's a lot of it. (laughs) As there is over there, of course. (laughs) I've been to Britain twice, and it has rained almost the entire time I've been there, both times. Yeah, well, when it's really um, magnificent weather here, it's really fantastic because then you go down to uh, Plymouth Hoe and you can see uh, out into the Sound where you'll see warships of today. And um, the Sound is one of the most magnificent harbours in the world and obviously a place where Warspite was seen many times having been built here in Plymouth at Devonport.yard. Awesome, awesome. Um, Yeah. So... Your book, Warspite, is about the whole history uh, of the ship. Um, And if we look at some of the British battleships that were present at one of its most famous battles at Jutland, there are names that kind of evoke heroism, conqueror, centurion, thunderer, valiant revenge, 
There are names that reference great victories like Agincourt, St. Vincent. There are names that reference heroic mythical Greek heroes, Ajax, Orion, Bellifron. Which brings me to my first question. What is a Warspite? Warspite is a name that embodies British uh, defiance and um, bloody-mindedness in the face of uh, the enemy, basically. And that's a, that's a characteristic of, uh, of English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh people in general. But in, a, in, in terms of Warspite, the warship, then it's said that it's meant to uh, embody contempt for the enemy, which would have been an expression of England's feelings towards Spain at the time of the first war spike, which was in the late uh, 16th century. And also, there's also a reference to uh, spite, meaning woodpecker. So the idea was that the war spike would peck at enemies, ships, hulls with their guns. And I must admit, a curious thing happened, if I can just digress for a second, when I was um, researching and writing war spite in 1999. I lived in a place called um, Hemel Hempstead, which is up near London. And our garden uh, used to be part of an orchard and there were lots of trees, apple trees in the garden. And as I was beginning the book, it was really weird because I heard the knock, knock, knock of a woodpecker. And so I looked out into the garden and this is kind of strange, but it was a, a, a traditional European green woodpecker with the, the red head. And that was actually the unofficial badge of HMS Warspite, um, obviously to do with the the spite, i.e. the woodpecker, uh, symbol or, or meaning to the name. And uh, so that was kind of freaky at the time I was starting the book, but it's a true story. I did see a woodpecker. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's, that's really interesting how, how a name like that can have meanings that, that kind of get lost as technology advances. Uh, obviously, it made a lot of sense back when ships were made of wood, uh, but yeah. maybe not so much later on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was um, one ship was called Thunderer, which was, uh, I suppose, a, a great, a great name for a, a wooden wall uh, line of battleship doing a, a broadside and I guess translated to the battleship Thunderer as well and uh, in in the days that followed in fact the years that followed Thunderer became the name of a of a shore establishment because we have things called stone frigates in the UK which are old warship names used for shore bases and Thunderer was a naval engineering college actually here in Plymouth so today you have HMS Nelson which is the Portsmouth uh, barracks and naval base and that was of course a battleship of uh, world war ii so the names still carry on uh interesting i, I did not know that about the sort of the shore establishments uh, yeah. taking on ship names yeah that's true yeah and uh hms drake is the one here in devonport and then used to have one up in um in Recyth in scotland called hms cochrane but that uh, cochrane was named after a, a famous uh, warrior of the age of sail so that was why uh, that, that name was picked, because he was also Scottish, so that made sense. So there's a, a variety of reasons why British warship names get uh, historic meaning and also attached to people. And if you look at Jutland, uh, you've got um, Valiant uh, with Warspite in the 5th Battle Squadron, and also, of course, Barham or Barham. That he, Barham was a first sea lord. Valin is a name that embodies courage and tenacity. And then, of course, you also had uh, Malaya, which was a ship named after part of the British Empire, which had been partly funded by the people of, of Malaya. So there's all sorts of things involved in these ship names in the Royal Navy. 
Yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, really, uh, around yeah. where they're coming from. Um, when we look at the time that the war spite was laid down, um, the pace of British naval construction before the First World War is, I think, unbelievable. Um, you know, they're laying down multiple ships, multiple capital ships every year, entire classes. I, th I think six, I think, is the most they, they sort of create in one year. So do we have any sense of what kind of the expected lifespan was of something like the war spite uh, was in those years? I suppose it depends on circumstances, how well built uh, a warship was and what its fighting power was. Because if you look at the battle cruiser uh, Tiger, which was laid down in 1912 and completed in 1914, a battle cruiser, light-skinned but capital-sized-shaped and heavily armed. But as you said in your original podcast, the temptation was that a big ship with big guns would be used uh, alongside tougher more robust battleships but would actually have only the armor of a very fast huge cruiser so lion became obsolete during the war and so she was uh, completed in 1914 but then sent to the breakers yard after a bit of peace uh, following the first world war um, 18 years later whereas war spite went on to serve for 30 years but then there were other other battleships which uh, more rapidly became out of fashion and obsolete and including orion which was completed in 1912, but by 1922 had been sent to the breakers because I guess, unlike War Spy, Orion was coal-powered. She didn't have 15-inch guns. Uh, she wasn't as robust, perhaps, in her construction. So Orion was discarded. And the Royal Navy is notorious, as a remark in my book at the end of the War Spy story, for being unsentimental. So there's no hanging on to uh, warships that really are not going to be any good. Uh, some do survive, and some did uh, see action in, in World War II that shouldn't have, such as the Hood, perhaps, or the uh, uh, the Renown and the Repulse, and they were battle cruisers that were remodelled um, some extensively, and in the end, they weren't tough enough to go up against ships like the Bismarck. So the Royal Navy will keep a ship and look at a ship and say, what can we use this ship for? What use has it got? Gunpower, protection, uh, relative speed, and can we can we use it to hold the line against anybody? And in the in the in the Queen Elizabeth class, including War Spite, they were seen, as you said yourself, uh, to be amazing products of uh, foresight of naval architecture and actually construction. So hence she served on so long, but um, she was due to go out of service, um, but the Second World War, out of necessity until the new King George V class battleships came in, kept War Spite in the front line. And as you, you said in your podcast, and I, I actually, of course, cover in my book, uh, there was a radical rebuild, uh, mm -hmm. which meant that War Spite could conceivably fight um, other more modern ships. So, so you talk about that, that major refit in the mid-1930s. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still you know, an older ship. So, so yeah. what were the kind of expectations for War Spite sort of as war began, as the Second World War began, you know, how did it, how did the Admiralty think it compared uh, to other ships that were out there? I think the Admiralty realised that this was um, a stopgap, which is why that was, in reality, more than just a refit. That was a rebuild, a major reconstruction. As you know, she had a, her um, guns improved with elevation so she could shoot further, could lob a shell so much further than she could before. Her machinery was modernised as much as possible. And also the, um, the, the, 
the command and control tower was made into this hulking great big uh, ugly tower of a thing which was gas proof and they, they really are on. very yeah. ugly like <laughs> yeah, yeah but the thing the thing they remind me of and hms rodney and hms nelson are the same is um is like uh, knights uh, so the hull is the horse and the, the, this great big helmet of a tower <laughs> is is the uh, is where the brain is and so they were you know they were brutish looking and ugly but i think they were designed to do the job and i don't think the admiralty uh, by the time 1937 came along 1938 uh, came along was under any illusions that it was falling behind and had to get on um, with using warspite and and queen elizabeth and valiant the two sisters that were modernized and rebuilt uh, to hold the line uh, because britain had uh, typically british actually had foolishly adhered to the um to the arms treaties whereas other people the germans the japanese the italians were clearly breaking the conditions were pressing on with larger ships with with bigger caliber of guns so uh they had a lot of catching up to do and i guess kept their fingers crossed <laughs> Warspite and her sisters and rodney and nelson which were the two most modern ships in the royal navy in september 1939 at somewhat uh what 16 years old uh, would be able to hang on until these new battleships came into service. So necessity is why Warspite was still there, I guess. Um, and so during the war, you mentioned uh, several times in your book uh, about living conditions aboard ship, especially uh, sort of when the ship goes out of the North Sea, Northern Atlantic area, uh, specifically like to, to Eastern Africa, where it would spend some yeah. time. Yeah. So what were living conditions like aboard a capital ship like this during the Second World War? You know, how did it try to adjust to different climates? I get the impression that something like air conditioning is not available. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's a, a huge contrast, of course, to the U.S. Navy's um, submarines and warships in the Second World War. And the problem was that, of course, the Royal Navy built uh, its submarines and, in fact, all its warships uh, for uh, more temperate climates like um, the North Sea, the Atlantic, uh, and the Mediterranean could just about handle the Mediterranean. But bizarrely, despite the Royal Navy being tasked with uh, patrolling the entire world, you know, with its cruisers, for example, uh, and battleships sometimes, uh, to safeguard the empire as it was then, uh, air conditioning, proper air conditioning and conditions were not there. And so they had to uh, sleep on deck, they had to strip down to the bare minimum of clothing, even in, even in the Mediterranean, where um, there's a, a memorable um, piece in the book where a destroyer comes alongside HMS Warspite, expected to see the battleship, the, the Mediterranean fleet flagship, uh, with everybody in smart uniforms, what they call uh, pussers, as in uh, uh, um, strict disciplined uh, uniforms and wearing proper gear. And they find the crew of the flagship in this battleship dressed in um, shorts, you know, and vests, and they're scruffy looking, like the Desert Rats would be ashore. So it was quite a surprise to some people to see that battleship sailors, these uh, amazing queens of the sea, would have these sort of ragamuffin uh, crews, but that was our necessity. And I think one of the people you highlighted was a Royal Marine um, I met called Ken Smith. And, and in the uh, Indian Ocean, he, he told me that they, they suffered terrible conditions. And uh, if I look at the book, he said that they were intolerable and that they had extreme temperatures. And of course, they'd be closed up at action stations, in his case, on the six inch secondary guns for hours at a time. And these were like sweat boxes and there were hundreds of people going sick. 
and he got a thing um, and other people got a thing called the Dobie itch they got prickly heat uh, yeah and they had to keep buckets of water near them to douse themselves and he actually became became quite ill uh, with the conditions so it wasn't it wasn't good and um, it was something that bedeviled um, bedeviled the Royal Navy's warships in the tropics throughout World War Two. Yeah, and I guess if you become sort of sort of ill in that situation, there's not a whole lot that can be done. Uh, um, you know, you're on a ship. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, there's the ship's doctor, and obviously mm-hmm. each, each battleship would have a, a a medical team that would try and look after people. But when you've got uh, a crew, uh, a ship's company of uh, what a thousand Royal Marines, sailors, and people are on a staff, an admiral staff, then it's going to be pretty crowded in there. So there's a limit to what they can do. So, of course, they had to um, uh, go to Durban in South Africa or go to Trincomalee in what was then Ceylon to, to get, a, get a rest. And, uh, and East Africa, as you said, uh, I think it's called Kilindini, where they would uh, part their battleships for a break. So, yeah, it was um, pretty arduous stuff. And people don't often think about that when they think about uh, battleships and warships in the Second World War, because uh, that would have a real impact on fighting capability. So, so you mentioned that you mentioned things that that people don't think about. So one of the things that I, I didn't really think about, I I think I've probably read more than the average person about <laughs> naval warfare, yeah. is how like the entire crew would sometimes rotate out of these ships. I think you mentioned in your book like several times throughout the war, uh, sort of the entire crew rotates off the war spite. So you know when it comes into uh, like yeah. America uh, for yeah. its its fixing. Yeah, and, and then when it leaves, yeah. it's maybe a totally different set of people. Yeah, I mean, that, that wasn't actually, um, for the Royal Navy, I'm sure it'd be the same in other navies, that wasn't um, unusual. Uh, but then what they would do is um, they would switch out uh, half the uh, ship's company. So let's say you have a 1,000 uh, guys in peacetime. Uh, for example, another ship I wrote about, HMS Rodney, uh, there's a bit in that book where it discusses, or one of the guys that talked to mentions that, uh, 500 of them walked through the barracks gates in, in Devonport, the naval base in Plymouth, down through the dockyard to Rodney, which has already discharged 500 uh, sailors to go back home to live with their families in Plymouth or further afield in Wales or wherever, London. And so they need a new draft of 500 people to join the core crew that's left on board. And of course, sailors in peacetime uh, would would ha- would go away in these battleships of the Royal Navy for two to three years, and if they were at Malta, they'd take their families with them. If they went further afield, they wouldn't. So the idea was that if, let's say, uh, Rodney, which didn't really go um, overseas uh, that much in peacetime, uh, would come in and then change over the crew so people could get a rest ashore and get trained. Well, Warspite was in the Mediterranean in peacetime, and so she would come home with all her crew and then switch out when they got home. Um, and I think the incident you're talking about is when, definitely that you're talking about, because you mentioned it, <laughs> is that um, uh, Warspite was damaged at the Battle of Crete. She went to uh, Puget Sound uh, to get uh, repaired on the, uh, the west coast of the USA. And uh, they took 500 guys off, sent them home, and 500 Marine, Royal Marines, because they helped cruise ships in those days, and sailors were sent on this amazing journey from Halifax after taking a, you know, a going with a convoy across the Atlantic, dodging the U-boats that then got on a train, I think in Halifax. And at the time, um, America was still neutral. So they had to pass through America when it was still neutral uh, for, for a short moment. Um, I'm trying to recall the details. And then they went across Canada 
So they had these stops in Calgary and places like that. And some of them went missing when they went <laughs> off drinking and they had to go and round them up. So 500 young men, you know, who were looking for, you know, adventures were taken across North America in these trains. And then, as you say, they were then put on board the war spike, which had been already blooded with 500 people that had been to war. And here were these these new guys coming in and they, they were going to be expected to take that shit back out. Yeah. They, they got the safest adventure of the war after Absolutely. they got to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. They tried to make it as unsafe as they could, but <laughs> they were rounded up. So that was a, uh, that's a brilliant episode. Yeah. Right. eBay motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Um, You've mentioned several times already, and there's a lot of it in your book. So you have a lot of these firsthand accounts from sailors. How did you get these accounts? Were you talking with veterans in, in later years who, who had sort of lived these experiences? I um, I was a journalist, a reporter um, uh, on various newspapers. And in um, 1990, I came down to, I worked in a London area and around other parts of the UK, but 1990, I came down to Plymouth, uh, which has a huge tradition as a naval base and, and dockyard and port because it's got this massive dockyard and they've always called Devonport. And uh, so when I arrived there, I'd just done a trip on the US, uh, USS, De- USS Dwight Eisenhower, which was an aircraft carrier, which was in the Mediterranean, which was a very thrilling experience to fly on board. And so I, I knew about, I was interested in military history and navies, but I hadn't really got into the Navy in terms of writing and reporting. So I thought when I came down to Plymouth and it was, there were a lot of warships here back in the, uh, early 90s I thought it's quite interesting the navy was quite interesting and so I I was a defense reporter I became the defense reporter on my evening newspaper and I was as part of my job uh, I would cover the world war ii anniversaries uh, of uh, the battles in the med and various other things and it was at the time of the 50th anniversary of the second world war and so I did a series of features where I would go around Plymouth and there were hundreds if not thousands of war veterans alive at that time and I would go and meet people either living in Plymouth or who came back to pay their respects at this massive naval war memorial we've got here to um to their lost comrades so I would kind of go to their meetings uh their reunions in pubs and uh military service clubs 
And uh, so I'd started to do that then. But when it came to Warspy, I'd, I'd left um, the, the Evening Herald, as it was called in Plymouth, and I was working in London. And then I went freelance and I decided I'd like to write naval history books. And this was the late 90s. And uh, I thought, well, the, the one I've got to do is Warspy, the most famous, the, the one with the most battle honours and an amazing ship, you know, two world wars. So I put an advert in the British Legion magazine, which is for you know, the ex-servicemen's association for all military people, a bit like the American Legion or any other legion in, in the military in any country. Um, and then I also put adverts in newspapers and got to know some of the people from the war spot. And I was invited to what was their 14th reunion in Weymouth. And there were, there were dozens of them there. And it was a big event in a hotel and it was a whole weekend. And um, the strange thing about war veterans, if we just digress a second, is that most of them, when they finished the war, and for 20 or 30 years or more, didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to discuss it. And they didn't start thinking about setting up associations to meet their shipmates again until often the 1980s. And that was the case um, with the war spike. So this was their 14th reunion in 1999. And so their 14th since 1985, which is quite astonishing when you think that the war finished in 1945. So it was, um, I was just in time, you know, in, in a 10 year period of my working and starting to write naval history books to meet these incredible men in not only the uh, War Spite and HRS Rodney and smaller warships and other warships um, across the 90s. And so I, I did talk to them and then would I would see them at reunions, take a few notes, meet them on the, on the sidelines um, from uh, maybe not during the dinner, but the following day, I'd go and sit at a table with them and then they'd, they would have a, a service of remembrance on the seafront. And then uh, afterwards, I would sort of chat with them and get their phone numbers and go and see them and, and talk to them on the phone. So it was an incredible period of, of meeting uh, the War Spike veterans and others. Um, and obviously, I've got train, training as a journalist, so I can take shorthand notes. And, and they, would lend me, you know, they would lend me things like the War Spike Association magazine, which was an amazing fund of what the Royal Navy calls DITS, which is stories about naval life. And then I would um, go to the Imperial War Museum as well and listen to their, their sound archive stuff. So there was um, uh, quite an amazing uh, period of, of working when I could combine uh, talking to veterans with what is now left in, in the archives. So it was uh, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. It's, it's kind of being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, and I wish I'd started 10 years earlier, to be honest. But yeah. yeah, that's how it always is, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, especially with things like this. Um, okay, yeah. um, so after the Second World War, British not constructing any more battleships uh, because that's how it goes. Um, yeah. But the war spite name would be resurrected as part of the Valiant class submarines. Do you know if there were discussions that occurred around resurrecting the war spike name or, or these other battleship names, kind of transitioning the battleship name into these nuclear submarines? I'll be honest, I don't, I don't have any um, insider information about how they kicked around um, this name. But I mean, there, is a, there was a, a ship's naming committee, it still is uh, in some form, which will discuss uh, the ramifications of naming a warship after a particular person, particular uh, part of the country, or, or some other historic name. So it had to be top of the list that when the Royal Navy was building its first um, undersea battleships, which is hunter, killer, or fleet submarines, what, what you call in the American Navy attack submarines, uh -huh. nuclear-powered attack submarines, in the early 1960s, that 
that they would look at battleship names because these were the new capital ships of the Cold War Navy. So Warspite, uh, you know, had such a an amazing record, such a lucky ship, despite her many many accidents and uh, other episodes where she had things go wrong. So there was kind of a feeling that she was a lucky ship, a famous ship, a ship with an amazing fighting record, and a capital ship. So the third um, nuclear powered fleet submarine, an SSN, uh, as they're called as well, uh, was Warspite. The first two were Dreadnought, which was uh, one, a one-off, the first ever nuclear uh, powered hunter-killer submarine in the Royal Navy. And then Valiant was the second, and uh, Warspite uh, was the third. And then you've got other names after that that were equally famous. And I think I read that the Warspite is possibly the name of a future submarine as well for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, if it ever happens. Yeah, it's, um, um, the, the Royal Navy does an unusual thing these days, uh, which is to name warships many years before they're actually um, uh, even taking shape, uh, being built uh, at all. So one of the things that um, they did uh, about 10 years ago, because it, I now run a naval, a naval magazine, uh, warships ifr magazine and i have interviewed quite a few first sea lords and people like that and uh, one first sea lord alan west uh, about 13 14 years ago uh, when i was interviewing him in london said that they decided to name uh, the first of the new strike carriers queen elizabeth and the second prince of wales two very famous uh, battleship names as well particularly prince mm-hmm. of wales queen elizabeth also queen elizabeth being a sister of warspite and that was, you know, just as the thing was getting started. So, okay, we're going to name these ships Queen Elizabeth. I'm going to call them Prince of Wales and nobody's going to cancel these ships because who's going to upset the Queen or the Prince of Wales? So they've carried on doing that with our new, um, our new frigates, which are called the City Class. So they've all been named uh, after various places like Glasgow and I think um, Belfast and also others. Manchester, I think, is one of them as well. And that's... Years, I mean, many years ahead of the first one is building now, Glasgow. And so when they came up with the, uh, the, new, uh, the new ballistic missile submarines, the version of the Ohio class, your Trident submarines, to replace our Trident submarines in the 2030s, and, you know, we're talking quite late into the 2030s, they came up with uh, the Dreadnought class. And we thought, wow, that's fantastic. And Warspite is one of those. And um, that's, fun, you know, brilliant news. But really, by the time that submarine... <laughs> It comes in the water. None of us will probably be, uh, well, we'll all be very old or we'll be dead. So uh, <laughs> A lot of wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, could happen. Might well happen. Who knows? You know, I don't think you should um, count your chickens or your warships before they're hatched. But well, yeah, that is the plan. Last three weeks of 2020 before we can think about any of that. So yeah, Absolutely. I mean, nobody can think about anything. I mean, it's, uh, um, you know, so we'll see what happens with the new war spike. But it'd be great if, uh, if that happens. Um, I mean, you can argue about whether or not Britain or any other nation should still have uh, nuclear weapons, but, you know, the name itself has been given to this submarine. So in terms of the name living on, I guess, that's it. And of course, the, the, the job of the new war spite, if the new war spite ever happens, will be very sedate because the whole point of a ballistic missile submarine is to stay out of the way and stay hidden and not do anything during its entire life. Because say, like, what you want from a nuclear-powered submarine as compared to a battleship is you want it to yeah. never do anything. Yeah, never be seen. I mean, I wrote about uh, Warspite, the attack submarine, in another book. I'm plugging another book here, Hunter Killers, which is, tells the story of... I mean, I can't get away from Warspite. Um, but certainly the new Warspite uh, will hopefully never be seen and never do anything at all in anger. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so um, you mentioned sort of the, the things built up around the Warspite legacy, and I know that you're involved in the Warspite Association. So can yeah. you discuss a little bit about the association and sort of its goals? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, as I said um, just a few moments ago, the association is, um, was the Battleship Sailors, and it's a very strong association, and actually it kept going uh, longer than others. You know, other associations disbanded in the, uh, in the late 90s or the very early 2000s. So the Warspite Association with Battleship Sailors, because um, that's what it's mainly about. There have been other ships called Warspite, and of course the submarine, but it's, it was mainly about the battleship. Uh, that was very strong, I'd say, until, I don't know, the mid, the mid, um, middle of the first decade of this century, the first 2000s. But as time marches on, uh, sadly, you know, they, the, the veterans of World War II have crossed the bar. So it's now mainly uh, submariners and a lot more um, low key, but it does have uh, still, the official War Spot Association does have an, uh, two meetings still. One is in Weymouth, which I think is picked because it's halfway between uh, Portsmouth and Plymouth, two great rival naval cities. And I, I'm, no, I'm not sure why they did that. Because <laughs> the Warspite was built in Devonport, became a Portsmouth ship. Um, and I suppose there's, there's a bit of, kind of confusion about that. And quite a few of her sailors lived near Plymouth and others lived near Portsmouth. So they meet in Weymouth, or they did meet in Weymouth, they still do on a smaller scale. Uh, for an annual thing where they sp- they pay their respects at the War Memorial on the Sunday. But then the big one, uh, in terms of m- remembering the end of Warspite's life and part of her legacy, uh, is again, you know, fairly informal, but involves local people as well as associate members of the association like me and the descendants of people that were in uh, the battleship and the Submariners is down at Marazion, which is a small town in Cornwall, um, near to uh, St. Michael's Mount, but St. Michael's Mount is like Mont Saint-Michel in uh, France. And it's this amazing building, this amazing historic building on top of a, a kind of a mini mountain in Mounts Bay, which is this amazing bay that runs around the Penzance in Cornwall. And Marazine is the town ashore, as it were, from St. Michael's Mount. And the reason, I'm getting very convoluted here, but the reason they have an annual meeting at Marazine is because, as you noted in your, your, pod, your earlier podcast, Warspite on the way to the breakers broke free of the tugs, ran aground at a place called Prussia Cove, was stayed there for a while, but was then towed round to the beach at St. Michael's Mount, where she was broken up under over a period of a number of years, and the bits carted away for um, melting down and turning into razor blades. So that is actually the last uh, resting place of Warspite, and there's still bits of her boilers in the sand there, and there are bits of her her wooden panelling from the wardroom and all sorts of bits in the local community, um, decorating pubs and things. So uh, Marazion is this place that people go in a pilgrimage in the autumn to salute Warspite. And there's a kind of memorial stone on the beach at uh, Marazion. So I hope that wasn't too confusing. But there's two meetings a year. And uh, that's why there's one in Weymouth and one in uh, one in Marazion in lovely Cornwall, which we can't visit at the moment, or we won't be able to have much fun there in the pandemic. But hopefully, um, maybe in a year or two, we'll get to go back, you know. Yeah, yeah it's, it's good to know that, you know, those kind of remembrance events are, are yeah. still happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, as I say, they, they, most of them have, have gone, have petered out the association. But some are strong, some still carry on, even though there's no veterans in. I mean, one of them is HMS Hood. That's an association that I know is strong, and there'll be others as well. 
So the memories do live on and they are still saluted. And when a new ship comes along, of course, you know, it may be if it's built in time that some of the veterans that, that sailed in either the, uh, well, not the World War II one, because there's going to be very few of them, but maybe in the, the, the ships that came after World War II, maybe those the ships that carry the same name, some of those veterans will attend those um, warships associations as well one day. Thank you for coming here to talk to me today. It's been uh, an excellent discussion uh, about an excellent ship. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And uh, it was good to keep the uh, memory of uh, what they call the grand old lady uh, going.